0: welcome to the cspi podcast i'm here today with robin hansen robin how are you
1: happy to be here and ready to talk about a big topic
0: <laughs> yeah we're glad to have you so before we get started uh, a lot of our audience is going to know who you are can you just give us sort of brief description of your background what do you do uh, what are your research interests like i'm an
1: associate that. professor of economics at george mason university i do an excessively diverse range of things I just had a paper accepted in an astrophysics journal on gravy aliens. I've done uh, information aggregation. I have two books, uh, one called The Age of M, Work, Love and Life and Robots Rule the Earth, and the other, The Elephant and the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Um, And, you know, (laughs) I guess we'll just find out more about my prediction market work in this talk.
0: It, it, you were, do uh, you have a degree in economics or you, you have an astrophysics? Uh, no, no,
1: I, I have a PhD in social science from Caltech. So, Caltech has a pretty small social science department oh. with, say, 20 faculty covering all of social science. And so, my degree was in social science. And the first time I went on the job market, I actually did better in political science. But, second time, I got this job offer in economics.
0: Okay. Uh, and you are. Uh... So you're, what are your interests, and one of the things I think we're going to spend the bulk of the time talking today is the idea of a futurearchy. Futarchy. Is that, is that how you pronounce it?
1: Futarchy would be a sort of fancy name for decision markets applied to government. Okay. But the, the larger topic would be what institutions can we all share to argue and aggregate information so that we can form collective beliefs that we can act on together. That, and that's a question in academia, it's a question in government, it's a question in business. Uh, it's a very fundamental, difficult problem, and uh, I think there's potential for doing a lot better than we've done.
0: Yeah, and so so what is what is the um, what's the problem? What is what do you th- what do you see as sort of the main issue that this is trying to solve besides a general, uh, you know, we well, so, okay, so all uh,
1: Most of you have been involved in conversations all your life, <laughs> sure. and you know that in conversations it's very complicated, and people have all sorts of agendas. And they aren't entirely honest all the time, and they aren't focused on particular tasks. And so uh, it's not clear you know that you c- can believe what they say. <laughs> so a reporter calls up various you know expert people with credentials or whatever and gets quotes for them, but they don't have a good incentive to tell their best honest estimate of the truth in, in those interviews. They're often incentivized to sound provocative, to sort of ally with whatever political tribe they're with, et cetera. And you know, we have these problems all over and all the rest of the conversations we have in business and government and academia, et cetera. So the question is, could we give people more direct, better incentives to actually tell the truth and figure out the truth so that when we had a meeting and people raised hands and we made a decision what to do, we would be doing it on the best knowledge we could
0: have? Yeah, so the way you answer that question that made me uh, that made me think of something. So do you see this as a matter of incentives in the sense that whoever the experts are, they just got half to have better incentives? Or do you also see it as sort of a selection process in that there is some trait that human or collection of traits that humans vary on, and some people are just better at getting the truth than others? Do you take the first? Both of those it, factors
1: right? are important, and so you want an institution that relies on both. <laughs> you don't want to just take a particular group of people and give them better incentives, nor do you just want a process that selects people. You want to both select people and give them good incentives, uh, so that. People know when they're selected that they will face those good incentives and they will be selected on the basis of anticipating that those good incentives will work well for them.
0: Yeah. And so, so if you so futarchy is the process of aligning incentives to get better opinions, a better policy. Well,
1: well, futarchy is decision markets, which is an application of prediction right. markets in general. So, which is an application of speculative markets in general. So, we might say we have this general. Uh, institution of speculative markets, basically stock markets, commodity markets, um, betting markets, et cetera. They've been around for many centuries. And they have this remarkable property that they often aggregate information very well from diverse people. And so the idea of prediction markets is to use that mechanism on purpose to get better information about particular topics of interest and then decision markets are prediction markets where the topic is directly targeted at a particular decision, where you're asking about the consequences of a particular choice to make those market uh, uh, estimates and advice as directly actionable as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it would be an example of you Say if there is a bill before Congress, it's a uh, you know, it's a. Uh, <clears throat> It's a um, a stimulus bill, you know, something in the news. And, you know, you would have some measure of outcome, you know, the GDP of the country in five years if you pass it or you don't pass it. Um, And then basically the the system you envision, basically there would be a way for the legislators to have their votes tied or whoever makes the decision tied to the results of the market. Is that right? Right.
1: So I think it'd be easier to start with like a more personal, smaller scale example before we get to reforming national government. Sure. (laughs) Uh, So I would suggest considering fire the CEO markets. So in ordinary public companies, there's a CEO. And one of the most important decisions that the board of directors makes is whether to keep or fire the CEO. And so the proposal would be to have stock markets that are conditional on whether or not you fire the CEO. So an ordinary stock market, you trade stock for cash, and the price there is an estimate of the value of the company and all the different scenarios it might be in. Now we're going to make called-off stock markets, and these are markets where we make trades of stock for cash, but those trades are called off or made as if they never happened if certain conditions aren't met. So we could have a if the CEO stays in power through the end of this quarter version of the market, and in those markets. The trades will be based on the expectation of how much the company will be worth if the CEO does stay. And then we could also have markets where the trades are called off if the CEO doesn't leave by the end of the quarter. And now this will be markets where people estimate how much is this company worth if the CEO leaves. And then the difference between those two prices, CEO stays and CEO leaves, becomes an estimate of the value of the CEO for this company. And that would be direct decision advice. The board of directors could look at that price difference and say, should we keep them or should we dump them?
0: Is there uh, is there any legal barrier to a company doing this or someone setting up a market like this?
1: Well, there is SEC regulations about commodities, and uh, so you, this could be thought of as a you know stock derivative, and so you need some sort of permission there. Uh, and you know that's the main regulation limit of course you'd also need the board of directors and the company to be interested in these numbers and that's more the real limitation
0: Yeah. see but it seems like you don't need it seems like you don't need to convince that many people as long as you know putting aside the uh, regulatory issue um to putting aside the regulatory issue so if the if you you know you have a corporation presumably if if you know the system of markets being better than you know other kinds of decision making is right they should have them. They should have a huge advantage, right, in the market, and they should, you know, be able to. Uh, they should be able to make right. a profit, so,
1: and the business. Sure, our up. consistent experience with speculative markets is that when we compare them to other mechanisms like polls or committees, they are either about the same or substantially better. They're, they're almost never much worse. So sometimes the question is just easy, and any mechanism can give you the answer, <laughs> like is the sun shining right now or something like that, right? Everything will just tell you the answer. But then sometimes things are hard and complicated, and then existing institutions are doing a bad job, and in that case, the market can click cut through and do, give you a better estimate.
0: Yeah. So, so I, uh, okay. So I, I I get that. So the uh, yeah. So but is but the, but then the the question is like, wouldn't you just be able to? I mean, you should be able to do this, and then you can just have sort of a tournament for your CEOs, right? You could have you know ten different uh, ten different prices, right? And you can just right. So, so this conditional
1: market mechanism hasn't actually been tested out in the world outside of laboratory tests. <laughs> in that yeah. we haven't been able to get people interested enough to try it. So, we've had a lot of tests of speculative markets that aren't conditional, uh, in the sense of we've had markets on deadlines, whether you make a deadline in sales and things like that. And we've probably had you know a hundred different trials like that over the last few decades. And typically, what happens is that if you know, there's enough support for the market in order to induce enough activity. Then again, the act price is about as accurate or more accurate than the status quo, and most users are satisfied, and the costs are modest. And that's been the history for many decades. However, a key problem is usually the market gets killed in the sense that uh, organization, you know, says to stop and doesn't continue it. And the main reason is that it's relatively disruptive. These markets are politically disruptive, and the way they are disruptive is analogous to imagine you put a very knowledgeable autist in the C suite that is yeah. somebody in the C suite who knows a lot about the company and you know and they go to the meetings and they just you know blurt out when they know things that is relevant to the conversation but they have no political savvy they have no sense of what does anybody want to hear or who will be bothered by anything they say that sort of an autist would not last long in the C-suite. They would be shunted aside and become an advisor to someone, perhaps trusted advisor to their side, but they wouldn't be allowed to speak in the boardroom. And, but that's what a prediction market is. It has no idea who wants to hear what it has to say. And it will often say things that people uh, do not want to hear and then embarrass them and then contradict what they've said. And then all the worse, of course, it'll be proven right.
0: Yeah. So but could but you know what's stopping the autist Or Does it say we, I mean the, the, the I guess what's stopping them is nobody has just done this yet but uh you know theoretically you could imagine the autist setting up the rules for the corporation right you might. The the <laughs> if they
1: were in charge at the beginning sure
0: yeah and that's that's what you need you need one rich autist in, interested in these ideas and well, he would go cool. and he would say the board has to operate according to you know these so, terms so now
1: but, we move to the question of like What fraction of companies out there are actually maximizing
0: profits?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's a very basic question in economics and and in our world. Uh, We economists tend to assume as as a simple initial working model that organizations that are for profit actually do maximize profits. And that's the thing they usually do. So if you give them a choice of A or B and B is higher profit, they'll choose B. And so here, if you apply that model, you say, well, this looks like it would give them key information to make key decisions, like, will we make the deadline? And it would be valuable, and the cost is relatively low. So, of course, they would do it. That's what you would say if you were applying that theory. And then here we have a case where it looks like, well, it hasn't happened yet. And you might think, okay, innovation is slow. It takes a while. But we've been waiting several decades. (laughs) And honestly, if I look across a wide range of other areas of corporate behavior, I can't fully support this profit maximizing theory. Uh-huh. I think I can find a lot of other places where they, what they do does not maximize profits. And, you know, I could give you a, a long list of examples. We could go through some of those. But, you know, then the question is, well, how do I come to terms with it? What theory do I have of firms uh, in the absence of profit maximizing to explain their behavior?
0: Yeah. So, well, actually, I, I, you know, I like the idea of going through the list. So besides not, you know, not operating according to uh, 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 betting markets, what what, what leads you to the position that corporations? Well, of course, until recently,
1: we appeared to have too little remote work. Um, Most commenters had thought remote work should be much more widely adopted, and it hadn't been. We also have the standard story of too many meetings. Almost everyone in large organizations complains there are too many meetings with too many people in them that last too long, yet they keep happening. Um, we usually have too many people interviewing new candidates, uh-huh. uh, as opposed to just looking at their credentials on paper. Uh, we often have, uh, when a new person becomes the, the boss of uh, a group of people, usually some of the people they are the boss of, they inherited and some of the people they get to pick. And usually they give higher evaluations to the second group of people. And everybody knows that, but they uh-huh. leave that on the books. We we let them do that. And there's a standard not invented here bias where uh, we're not so interested in stuff that wasn't invented here <laughs> compared to stuff that was invented here. There is yes men bias, which is, of course, you know, famously well known that. Uh, so if you're a, a manager and you're trying to get people to um, tell you the truth about things, one, you know, powerful strategy is to ask them what they think before you tell them what you think. <laughs> And then use what you think as a way to judge how good what they think is. So even if you're not very well informed compared to them, it still can give them an incentive to tell you what they think because their best guess about what you think is still whatever the truth is. However, many managers don't follow the strategy. They very clearly telegraph what they think and therefore induce other people to be yes men or yes women, where they just parrot and repeat back what the boss said. So that no longer produces an incentive for the other people to think carefully about what they think. And instead it gives them incentive to parrot what the boss says. So these are, you know, a half dozen examples here, but I have a blog post somewhere where I went through 20 of them. Uh, And again, we, we look, go down the list and we go each one, if it was just one, I might say, okay, I just don't understand that somehow I'm, I'm not looking at it. Right. Somehow it really is profit maximizing. But if I've got a list of 20 of these things and they're big things, I go, well, I guess I need a better theory.
0: Yeah. Okay. And what is, what is the alternative theory?
1: I'd say that we want to think of large organizations as fields of battle between coalitions, Uh Uh, but that each coalition uh, is fighting for control over the organization, and most of these policies are in the interest of individual coalitions. They're just not in the interest of the organization as a whole. So, for example, in a coalition, you want lots of your people in the meetings so that they can push for your agenda. (laughs) And it's great if the other people aren't in the meetings, especially if, say, they're rem- remote working and they can't make a lot of the meetings. So uh, you want the other people to be remote and not in meetings and your people in the meetings. You want your people to be interviewing new candidates so they believe that they owe you a debt of gratitude if you're hired, uh, You know, et cetera, down the list. So when, mm-hmm. when coalitions are competing with each other, there's policies that help coalitions and... Um, which isn't so much what helps the company. And so related to prediction markets or forecasts, most coalitions are sort of organized around a a set of shared interest and they form an agreement to support certain projects and they just don't want their agreement to support those projects to be at risk to fluctuating estimates. (laughs) So uh, prediction markets will fluctuate, right? And at the moment it might favor something and then a week later it might change its mind, right? And and that's just not very reliable as a member of your coalition, (laughs) Uh, mm-hmm. You want to sort of get together and support George's project and, and George's division, and then you want to do that, you know, early on and stick with it, regardless of how
0: the estimates change. Do you think that this is uh, so? Do you think this is what happened? I'm sure you've seen the uh, the charts showing, for example, in universities, <clears throat> administrators have been—you know—the number of administrators are going through the roof, and you know the number of professors is flat or just barely rising. And I saw another one with the same thing with doctors versus uh, medical administrators. And then someone on Twitter said, you know, that that, that chart was no good. I'm, I'm not sure if it's good or not. But do you think, as a general matter, this is what's happening? Perhaps uh, you know there's a there's a sort of this this administration bureaucracy that where this coalition, coalition is getting bigger and bigger and it's just expanding because it's sort of optimized for its environment? I,
1: I don't. It's not a crazy theory, but I haven't thought that through. The question is, if I had a coalition in a university, for example, would increasing the number of administrators within my part of the university help me win coalition battles against the other ones? Um, mm-hmm. If yes, then the theory is predicting that this happens, but it's, it's not obvious that that's true but I don't know university administration as well as other people, so maybe someone who knows that can comment.
0: Yeah. And uh, and so is this, is this just a matter of when institutions get too big? So, I mean, does your theory predict that the smaller the corporation, if you have a founder, for example, with just you know, a founder, just a few people, that they're going to behave more rationally than a larger corporation that's been around for a while?
1: I mean, that's not my theory. I mean, that's just very widely predicted. <laughs> so, you know, almost everyone, says that small organizations have fewer of these coordination problems. They have other problems. Uh, you know, there's a lot of problems that bedevil small organizations. And, and often it's just like the leader is arrogant or, you know, blind or, and and has all sorts of just personality issues, et cetera, right? And, and that tends to be the kind of problem you have with very small organizations as these sort of very personal uh, conflicts. Um, but at least <laughs> you don't have these larger coalition battle problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so this is, I mean, this is a problem. It seems like we get, so you're, you're, I mean, this theory would go, I mean, so you're taking, well, let me ask you this way. What is the, you know, what's wrong with the, uh, what's wrong with the uh, uh, sort of the, the classic free market position that what will, will happen is you'll have varying degrees of rationality and the ones that are the institutions and firms and individuals who are rational will just out compete the ones who are not. What, what do you see going wrong there?
1: So, I mean, I think, in fact, the correct response is to say, you know, the free market version is probably the best. You just have no idea how much worse things can be. Yeah. I mean, so people often look at sort of the status quo of, of a business world, say, that is relatively free market, and they look at this up close and they go, This looks terrible. How could you possibly be defending this? And the the argument has to be, well, it would just be so much worse <laughs> with without uh This And in fact, you know, often if you look to large stable organizations like universities and government agencies or churches that have been around for a long time, it is in fact worse. I think that's roughly right. Uh, Another story might be, you know, we've hobbled some of the competition between firms uh, that might solve some of these problems. So I, I honestly think one of the biggest wins we could do is to just allow stronger hostile takeovers. Uh, the laws at the moment make it harder to do hostile takeovers. They require a substantial tax on them, in essence. And so, if you see a badly run company and you have an idea how it could be run better, uh, the problem is how are you going to profit on that? So, but if you could just buy up the company, you know, change its management and then sell it again after it was better, uh, that would be a big powerful engine for making it better. And, and there have been times when that mechanism has been allowed to do more, and it has made huge changes, and that's what inspired people to 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 lock it down and prevent those changes because they were scared it was coming for them.
0: Yeah. So there's just this status quo bias. What, what's the what's the what's the uh, regulatory barrier there? Is it antitrust, or what, what is it that makes it difficult to do this?
1: So uh, the the key thing is that when you are going to try to do a takeover bid, you have to warn people <laughs> so they can bid up the price on you. <laughs> Uh which means that you end up paying a substantially higher price, uh, you know, 20% even more above what you would have paid if you could have bought the stock in stealth without people knowing you were trying to buy it up.
0: How do you, where where do you, uh, this is a technical question, how how do you announce it and what what happens is just some other... There is
1: a formal process by which you announce that you have a certain number of shares in the company and then you're hoping to buy more. And then um, again... You can't have bought very many of them by the time you announce this and then you know what typically happens is the prices get a bit up and you in the expectation that you'd be willing to pay more for the company and then you you may or may not succeed in buying it up there's also a number of other things we allow such as poison pills various rules in which if there's a takeover then all of a sudden some people get some extra stock and some extra voting shares and some extra Mm -hmm. abilities to make it hard for you and you know we and we have a whole bunch of these rules that have basically made it difficult for people to take over companies
0: yeah, and so so your view is basically irrationality persists. Uh, irrationality is in you know non profit maximizing behavior, and then you know the, presumably that's uh, you know that's uh, uh, hurting the aggregate wealth of society. That exists uh, because basically we're protecting. You know, we're productive institutions. We have a we have a status quo bias. Uh, we're, you know, resort, we have, we're
1: we're making it hard to make changes. On the other hand, yeah. you know, competitive business world is one of our best worlds we have in our world. It's yeah. one of our shining examples of productivity and innovation. Is the business world to the extent that it is free to do something? So now you could just say, well, if we were make it more free to to pursue profits and to innovate, then it could be even so much better.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so you know, it's funny because you say this is the best, you know, this is the best world we have, and you can compare it to other things. So my uh, background is in international relations, and they these pe- people start often start with the assumption that the country is, you know, trying to maximize something. It's, you know, right. So that's or even like crazier
1: thing. an assumption. As <laughs> <That's laughs> right. it's even easier to find counterexamples to that.
0: Yeah. yeah I mean, it's hard to. I, I. You know, I would go further and say it's harder to find. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, why does the U.S. just right, end, right, end I mean, and how and many war? How many
1: wars were started that were actually expected profit wars? For example,
0: <laughs> yeah, they tend to be pretty crazy. And you know, the the whole field. I mean, the whole field to a certain extent is it, you know sort of built around it. And of course, that is not what everyone. How everyone? Right. Is. So, you know, it's a, it's a big you know political. But, but in the
1: future, we could imagine you know for-profit for company nations. For example, y- you might imagine that better it would be possible to make better-run nations, and that they would be more rational in this sort of selfish strategic sense and it that's a thing that could happen in the future and in some sense futarchy is this proposal used use decision mark for governments and it could in fact achieve that um maybe we should say a bit about how that might work
0: mm. yeah well let me ask you yeah do, future this futarchy have uh, sort of a? Uh, is it do you put it in a larger intellectual tradition because a lot of people when they're coming up with that idea did you come up with this term by the way
1: yeah and and i've been ridiculed for it it's not <laughs> It it has various associations in different languages, et cetera. (laughs) But I was just thinking of it as a future government. Uh, That was my, you know, origin of the name. Uh Uh, And, of course, the context, there's two key contexts. One is is to show how far the idea could go. If you just talk about, say, firing CEOs or changing churches or, you know, all sorts of small organizations, I don't think people get quite as inspired as if they could see how it could become a form of government. Because that's pretty grandiose and high status. Yeah. So uh, Futarchy is trying to show how it w- might look if you went all the way to that level of application. Not that I'm recommending that we do that first at all. I would recommend we try small scale experiments and work our way up to large organizations. But still, that can be an inspiration to, to go down the path because you hope you might go that far. And of course, it's also related to other proposed forms of government, and so uh, it has some you know differences and and similarities to others, and, and you can think about what it's emphasizing and, and what its problems are compared to the others.
0: Yeah. So we, we put aside, we started with the uh, the markets for, uh, you know, CEO performance. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the broader, the grander right. idea? How, so how, would, how would your ideal government So function? in the
1: CEO case, we have an outcome that we agree on that's the relevant outcome, i.e. the stock price for this public company. And then we had discrete decisions. Do we fire the CEO or not? And that's what we the key things we need to make this apply to other things. So for uh, a national government, say, uh, the discrete choices would be each new bill that's proposed. And uh, we'd be asking, if we pass this bill, are we going to be better off? And then for the outcome, we're going to need to construct it more for a nation. So uh, the idea is the legislature still exists, but now they vote on bills that defines a national welfare function. So it's a bit like, say, GDP at the moment, say, the Bureau of Labor Statistics defines GDP, and then it oversees the measurement of GDP. And of course, many scholars often look at GDP numbers and say that the countries with higher numbers are better and try to recommend policies that would increase your GDP. Well, now we're going to authorize this same sort of agency to estimate number like GDP, except we're going to tell them to put more things in the number. (laughs) So, bills before Congress would say, you know, count more trees and count leisure and count sort of international reputation. And they would just make a bigger formula that included all the stuff they cared about in this measure of national welfare. But now there would be assets, you know, financial assets that pay out in units of national welfare. So, if you know, national welfare ends up being 12.9, then it pays out $12.9 or some other financial unit. So now we can then bet on national welfare. But more importantly, we can bet on national welfare conditional on whether a particular bill passes. And so then for each bill, we'd have these two prices, the price of uh, national welfare if the bill passes and the price if it doesn't. And then the difference between those two prices is a direct advice about whether or not to pass that bill. So we could set that on, on the side and just have it be giving advice to a legislature, or we could put it directly in charge and just say, when the market approves of it by having a higher price, then that's just as if the legislature had passed it and it just becomes law.
0: So, so like to, you know, just make sure we're, we're clear. So, let's say, you know, we're debating Obamacare, and then we would have to first have sort of a, an aggregate measure, right? We'd say, what's GDP going can... to? Be you know, maybe, uh, you know, give that like, you know, 40% of the calculation, you know, what's the human life expectancy in the U.S. going to be, you know, in 10 years right. or whatever. Uh, and then you would just do this for a bunch of different things. And then you would just have a market basically say, okay, if Obama if Obamacare uh, passes, it's going to be X. And then if Obamacare doesn't pass, it's going right. to be Y. Right. right. So then, this
1: national welfare function, we don't have to redefine it for each new bill. <laughs> it's exactly. just the standard welfare function that we have for all the bills we consider. And then, you know, sometimes we'll change the welfare function and then we're changing our metric of consideration. But basically we, we might have, say, two slots of day where a new bill is considered by this process or might even have, you know, 10 slots a day. And at each slot, we might even have an auction to decide who gets to put their bill up during that slot. And then during that hour, say, or half day, you know, the market decides whether that bill passes and then we go on to the next bill in the next half day. And again, the national welfare measure would just be the same measure that we had decided on months ago.
0: Yeah. Okay. And if, and so, and do you figure that, and you figure this is, you don't need the assent of, uh, Congress to do this, right? I mean, ideally maybe the, it would be like, right. if you want to just problem. make
1: it be advisory, you just need the legal permission to create these markets. Uh, And then we could just sit on the side and we could track, say, you know, when the Congress passed a bill versus didn't pass a bill, did it follow this market advice and see sort of the the net effect of these things? But uh, it would be better for many reasons if it was just more directly in charge. Yeah. I (laughs) I mean, we already have a a democratic system where there are often experts who know the right thing about bills and they tell each other the right things and the public never hears that. And so politicians just ignore it. (laughs) So the question would be: If this was just on the side as an advisory thing, would the public pay any attention?
0: Yeah. How serious? Do you, I mean, if you had a uh, how serious are the regulatory barriers? I mean, if you had enough, you know, if you had enough money, uh, could you do this for the you know the things that Congress is debating right now?
1: Um, well, or- I wouldn't do this as the first thing. So again. Uh, you know, this would inspire you as as an endpoint that you could eventually get to. But a, a shorter term project would be, say, in a presidential election, you've got the Democrat or the Republican who might be president. and We could just estimate some outcomes for the nation conditional on whether the next president is Democrat or Republican, right? So we could have GDP, we could have lifespan, we could have war deaths, we could have, uh, you know, all sorts of numbers. And that would be a straightforward thing to do every presidential election. We could just be estimating the consequences of who we elect. And we really haven't done that before.
0: Yeah. Is that the, is that the best way to do it? Or is that, is is that going to pose difficulties? Because if the market comes back and it says, uh, Democrats are unquestionably better for the country than Republicans or vice versa, that'll, that'll poison, uh, that'll, you know, that'll poison the idea of dynamic markets with half the country, wouldn't it?
1: Well, so, uh, you know, you will want to sort of collect a track record over a longer time. So, so my, my overall plan is that I want to these things to happen in small organizations to get track records there and then slowly work their way up to bigger things. Uh, you know, we don't want the only main trials to be sort of national level politics that, you know, that doesn't make sense because you don't really even get enough data there. <laughs> right? You want a lot of smaller decisions that where you get a lot of data and where you can show that this is just working well you might know, think of it like you know what I'm old enough to remember the time when the government started to use computers for things yeah. and they did that because the private sector was using computers for things and people said, hey why isn't the DMV using computers if the private sector is and they got kind of embarrassed and they decided they would try to use computers right because it was just obvious that elsewhere this was a pretty good idea right? That's how you want to do innovation, ideally, is you just want to, you know, have lots of people using it because it just seems to work. And then eventually the government is shamed into doing it too.
0: Yeah. And so we're, we're, uh, do you see uh, be the opportunities out besides the the CAO markets? Uh, do you, you know, what else could be sort of promising places to do this?
1: So, So this mechanism really is quite general, and it can apply to a very wide range of problems. And so you know, I would basically mainly be opportunistic about where... You know, there's a group of people who are willing to try it there, but just to whet your appetite, we can go over a lot of options here. So most organizations, you know, hire people regularly. And each time they have a job opening, they usually interview several people for each job. And when they hire them for that job, they're hoping for certain outcomes. And usually they have some internal process that that you know rates how well that employee is. And they could, in two or five years, have a rating for that new employee of how well they did. So It would be straightforward then to have markets on each candidate for a particular job position saying, what will be the rating of this employee if we hire them in, say, two or five years? And that could just be a general process every time you had a a candidate for a job opening. And of course, every time you've got a project with a deadline, you should have a market on whether you'll make the deadline. And Uh you could even have that market on whether you make the deadline give you that probability conditional on changes you might make to the project, i.e., You know, pull back on the requirements, add resources. Uh, Those are all sort of obvious Change who's in charge of the project. Those are all obvious, you know, things you might do to see if you can make a deadline. Students who are, you know, high school students applying to college could, you know, have markets saying if they chose college X, what will their outcomes be, say, after they grad, you know, in five years or if they chose college Y. And the markets could tell them which college to pick. Or on the other side of the equation, the colleges could have markets in the student applicants saying, well, if we apply, if we accepted this applicant, how well would they do after four years here in our program, say?
0: Yeah. Who, who, would, who would be betting on, for example, the individual kids going to uh, one college or the other? Do, do the friends and family? Or is it, or well,
1: or- so for, for all these markets, you know, there's a key question of who do you allow to participate And one of the issues there is that whoever you allow to participate gets to see the information, the market prices. And they're also the people you want to reveal information to so they could be better informed at making choices. Mm -hmm. So if you had a student who was willing to let the world see their, you know, test scores and their Mm -hmm. application essay, you know, and even some description of their priorities or whatever, maybe, you know, personal information, then. You open that market to the public, and then people could browse that material and, and make a guess about that particular person. Yeah. Uh, there's a trade-off, though. If they don't want to reveal as much information about them, then they don't have to. But then fewer people in the market will be able to make a good judgment, and they will just be degrading the quality of their estimate. You know, as as a cost of keeping some privacy, and you know that's completely reasonable to do. But you just want to make that trade-off. Uh, you know, another. Application that would probably be even more disruptive is uh, when you're thinking of marrying someone, and you ask the markets how will how will our marriage go if we get married? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or you could even you know think of dating particular people and ask you know how how will it go if I date this person? Um, and th- and those are things, of course, you would mostly want to be asking people who who knew you somewhat better. But the whole point of these markets is you don't have to decide who's good at answering questions. You just open it up, and you let them decide.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think in that case, in particular, I think there's a you know there's a information there's there's such an informational asymmetry between you as an individual and everyone else in the world that if there's one place where betting markets maybe cannot improve on just people making their own decisions, you know, might be uh, you know marriage and dating and things like that.
1: Right well, now, other people who are in that market would want to know if you were betting in it too. So there's a general mm-hmm. phenomena in these markets. Where people are wary of should be wary of betting against people who know a lot more than they do, and this is, for example, one of the rationales for limitations on insider trading in stock markets, mm. uh, and. You know There are many reasonable choices to make there. So you could tell the world, well, I'm going to be betting in this market on whether my marriage works, but you're welcome to bet too. And they might think, well, I don't know as much as you do. I'm not going to touch that. Uh And so in order to get them to bet, you might say, well, I'm not going to bet on that. And neither is anybody in my family. Right. And you could just set a limit on who's going to be allowed as a way to entice people farther away to participate. Similarly, a company who has a stock market on that company? If they could choose to allow insiders, then they'd have a choice. Uh, if we allow insider trading, then people who are not insiders will know they might be trading against insiders, and, and that might put them off from trading on that stock. Oh, on the other hand, if we allow, you know, if we prevent the insiders from trading, we will entice more outsiders to trade. On the other hand, we'll lose the information those insiders would have given had they been allowed to trade.
0: Yeah. So uh, just that, uh, that, 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 uh, uh, makes me think. Do you have an opinion on a, on laws against insider trading? Do you think that they're they're generally well, it good? It seems or to me that
1: it's it's the company that has the cost, so it's not clear to me why anybody else should be having a say. <laughs> you know, the, com- the whoever owns the company, is making the trade off in whether to allow insider trading. Now, of course, if the company is not being run in the interest of those investors, <laughs> then we have to worry about making a good choice about insider trading but then we have to worry about making a good choice about everything the company does i mean that's what we were talking about before when companies are not run for the you know maximizing profits then the investors have to worry about what they are being run for and whether they're going to be basically stolen from from the people who are managing things but you know insider trading is one way they could be stolen from but there's a thousand others
0: yeah the um uh, one thing i think you know one place where this might really work is uh, i think sports so and this is something that you could get a lot of people betting on because people love arguing about sports so you could have you know a thing where you have the nfl or nba draft and people always debate you know should you draft this player or that player and you could have markets you know easily sure i I just happened to have a conversation
1: with someone on that a few hours ago (laughs) but it's still an idea that's that's going to happen someday so, you know, what people say betting on a football game today, you're betting on who's going to win the game and say by how many points. But you might have more fun betting on each play. That is uh not only betting on what the play will be and how it'll go out, but recommending on the play. So you could say if we pass this play, you know, how many yards on average will we get if we if we run this play, how many yards will we get or what's the chance of making a first down? Yeah. You could bet on the consequence for each play. Similarly in a basketball game, you could bet on you know, taking out a player, putting a player in in a, you know, automobile race, you could bet about when you make a pit stop, when you, when you don't, <laughs> you know, there's all these choices in games. And I think people would find it more engaging to bet on uh, recommendations for choices in the game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can already with the uh, sports betting. If you go to the websites, you can bet, for example, you know, not just on the game. You could I don't know if you could do conditional bets. I have never seen that. Uh,
1: right i've yeah. never seen conditional bets on choices yeah <laughs> that that's yeah. the key thing here i you know a choice of a player a choice by a coach
0: yeah i mean i've seen stuff like you know who will win the the tip off in of the basketball who's gonna win the coin toss in a football game who's gonna win the, you know the first quarter whos gonna so score i, I
1: once looked on to uh doing this for war college war games so <laughs> as you may know many war colleges have war games where they Put teams on different sides and give them various, you know, equipment and a simulated war, and they have them go to war. And, and you could imagine well letting everybody else who's watching the war game give advice about particular, st- you know, strategies in the war game. Uh, and that seemed plausible to me. But then when I talked to people at war colleges, I found that most of these war games are kind of fake. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have a predetermined outcome. That's some lesson they want to tell, and so <laughs> yeah, they aren't really letting it be open to winning one side or the other
0: oh, that's funny because you see you'll see headlines every now and then and they'll say oh my God you know the u.s loses to China you know in, in a war game and yeah, yeah. I, I'm almost not that that's I'm sure, sure there, that
1: would... there probably are real war games somewhere they just aren't at the war colleges apparently yeah <laughs> so that, that's where I was thinking I could sort of convince somebody to try this sort of thing but
0: yeah so I mean have you had any partial successes are, are there projects that are getting off the ground that you are excited about I mean have people let people take up your ideas anywhere?
1: Well, there's uh, been a whole pile of work in blockchain uh, where people have created prediction markets, um, platforms, and tools on various blockchain um, systems. And uh, unfortunately, most of that work has sort of been at a low level of tools and platforms, so they haven't really gotten very close to applications. Uh, So blockchain people are just mostly software people and algorithm people, and they're not so much business people, you know, who, who, who work with particular clients. And so they just haven't been very eager to get their hands dirty working with particular, you know, customers who might want to do markets on particular things. Yeah. But they've still been collecting all these tools. And so hopefully someday somebody will use all those tools to, uh, to connect to customers.
0: What is the advantage of the, of the blockchain? Or what was the difference between a blockchain, say, uh, uh, you know, market versus just something like predicted? Or well, so that's an so excellent that
1: question. <laughs> so initially the story was, That blockchain was out of control, that it uh, couldn't be regulated. So you could set up a system on a blockchain, and if the regulators didn't like it, they didn't have anybody to go to to stop it. The blockchain just kept going regardless of who didn't like it. And that was a big selling point. People said, well, look at all this financial innovation we can do because we are freed from existing regulations on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. So that's what they said. And then a lot of companies formed uh, on those basis, but these companies didn't sort of take personal strategies to match that <laughs> rhetoric. <laughs> so you would think if, if your plan was to put a, you know, product on the blockchain and that you were going to say nanny nanny to regulators because you can't get me, you wouldn't like have a big public presence <laughs> with the headquarters and your picture and the, mm-hmm. in the, in the magazines and show up in person at conferences Right. Because, yeah, sure. well, that makes you more obviously a target. Right. We're and so they, the that's what to... they did, though. And then they they you know sort of backpedaled and said later, oh, we're following all the regulations. But, you know, <laughs> people don't really believe that. So it's been this big question, you know, to what extent will governments crack down on these blockchain things that at least from the government regulators point of view are not following their rules?
0: Yeah. All right. Do you have in mind the uh, the Coinbase news that came out the last few days, or today? Was it today or yesterday? That uh, this
1: uh, this is just a continuing issue. I don't have any particular recent events in mind, but you know, the, but there are lots of stories about regulators thinking of doing a lot more regulating and then you know cracking down more. And yeah. this is a big question. A big question about blockchain is how far will they crack down? And You know, what will be the consequences? Of course, people say, well, in principle, you know, Bitcoin can keep chugging along even if they do crack down. And and no doubt that's true to some degree. But, you know, the question of how much activity there'll be is still somewhat open. I mean, you could have it chugging along with far lower activity because a lot of people had been discouraged.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, just for, you know, for, the, for the listener, we're talking now on September 8th, 2021, so who knows when people will be listening to this, and there's been just news in the last few days about uh, Coinbase and the SEC, and I don't know all the details, but it's something like that. Where Coinbase in the last few months, days.
1: China had this big policy of saying, no more mining here. Yeah, exactly. And so that you know, there was a big drop, I believe, in prices right at that point, reflecting the fact that people then realized there'd be a lot less stuff happening in China.
0: Yeah, my understanding, better, but uh, that wasn't reflected in the, the, I mean, Bitcoin has been doing pretty well recently, right? So it was apparently not fatal or not that bad. Um, for, for, for The, Bitcoin, the volatility
1: right? in these prices is so large that I wouldn't draw much of any inferences from, <laughs> uh, you know, the price movements. It's just, it's just wild.
0: Yeah, but the, the, the price for uh, Bitcoin has been doing well, right? So isn't that an indication that uh, whatever the Chinese did, it wasn't uh, harmful to the uh, long-term prospects of cryptocurrency? Well, the volatility
1: of these cryptocurrencies is just really large, so that makes it hard to draw many connections between particular events and uh, what's happening with it.
0: And, yeah, and that's an issue good. about
1: these conditional markets. So so p- people have noted that... Uh, if you have a stock market sequence and then you have events, you can try to correlate events in the stock market sequence in order to untangle conditional estimates. So, for example, people mm-hmm. tried to do that with betting markets on elections in the stock market in order to say which candidate is better for the stocks by looking at the correlation between those prices. Mm-hmm. And that's possible to do, but it, the, you know, the, the mo- price movements are noisy. And so there's a lot of room for arguing there. And so just the direct conditional markets are a much clearer signal than mm-hmm. uh, these correlations and prices.
0: There, yeah there's noisy but there there are a lot of elections right I mean there's a lot of uh you know you could even go uh uh you could even do things like in you know places that are you have all the national elections right every two years sure. uh, and then you have um you know even local elections when you have mayoral races uh, I guess right. you a just lot don't of have area.
1: betting markets on all those races
0: yeah but you have corporations that are you know located there for for example sure. or industries there so it seems like you i mean anecdotally it seems that um i remember do you, do you remember the Bernie sanders during the primaries he won some primary and then he said oh the you know the stock the or he lost a primary and he, did he, he he lost and then he said uh or he he okay he lo- I think he lost a primary and then the market went up right and then his argument was, "Look, these you know these billionaires are bad so for happy. business.
1: And that's the way." Yeah, he,
0: he was proud. He was proud of this. So, so given right. you know the political culture, it was the other way around. He might have won, and it went down. Right. I don't remember. So I think he I think he lost it. A
1: bit so right. a standard right. story in finance for a long time has been, you know, we've got thousands of market prices in the financial world, and uh, there's all these events that happen in the world. So in some sense, you know, there's really all this information embodied in all these financial market prices, especially if they fluctuate every minute or so, right? And so in principle, the answer to all your questions is somewhere out in this vast cloud of financial market prices. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that may well be true. It's just not at all transparent, right? You, you'd like a, a clearer answer. And so a thing that betting markets can do is give you a more direct, clearer answer, even if in some sense that answer was already implicit in all the other prices.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. Tra- I think transparency is key because if someone is doing this research on you know uh, the effects of uh, you know stocks and uh, on the market uh, of election outcomes, I, I would think they're probably on Wall Street. They're probably not in political science departments. I mean, is that, is that would that be your intuition too?
1: Oh, I mean, they're in both places. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. uh, but again, do, you know, you there's t- so t- much t- dispute. T- I mean, there are so many interested parties that uh, you know, with statistical analysis, it's just possible to do it so many different ways to get the answer you want. And so, you know, I'm sure if you're in the, the know, you could know who is playing those games and who's not, but the rest of us from the outside find it harder to tell.
0: Yeah. But your, but your, your idea of, uh, you know, but your, your idea of incentives and, you know, people getting things right, I think would do, give you an intuition that, you know, the stock people, uh, playing the stock market are doing better than political scientists, or you don't have that intuition.
1: I mean, it, it's definitely true that, you know, there's a lot of very smart people playing stock markets and, and, you know, financial markets and that a lot of them make money. Uh, and but they mostly make money from the other people trading in those markets which has to be a warning against ordinary people trying to go out and speculate on these things yeah uh you know that that would be my biggest advice is if you're going to play the stock market you should like be part of one of these broker organizations who really knows what they're doing because if you go out and just try to bet against them most likely you're going to be on the other side of their trades and losing
0: yeah so are you as um So, okay. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is all interesting. So you, you think that, um, you know, it seems like you're saying a little bit differently because you're two different things because you're saying that uh, you need, you want to start big with the government because it's high status and you want to start from there. But you're also saying, you know, we could start somewhere maybe sports leagues or something you see just sort of the the big thinking as sort of a way to uh, uh incentivize you know people just just get people excited about this stuff but you think practicality, people have to start a little bit smaller so
1: so definitely just pointing to the big applications can inspire people even if you're not going to do them first uh you know making that connection to people can make them more interested uh i mean you know this is also true for many kinds of innovation right you 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 Most kinds of startups or companies, you have each person doing a pretty small thing, but you want to connect, tell them about how that's connected to the big project of the organization. And that makes them more interested and motivated to to be part of the whole project, right? So uh, I definitely, you know, for the purpose of collecting data and uh, sort of getting solid progress, I'd rather do small things first. On the other hand i do think there's this interesting status strategy of starting from the top down so if, i don't know if you remember the movie the social network which was yeah. about the early days of facebook and the story was there were other social networks before facebook but they started with sort of average people and then sort of have an average pool of people you could connect to which wasn't nearly as tempting as facebook because it started at the very most prestigious place harvard And slowly it worked its way down the status hierarchy, adding the ALC or Princeton. And then at each point, as they expanded it, people were eager to join because they were eager to associate with these higher status people, right? So the general lesson here is it's often, if there's a a status barrier to doing something, it's easier to start at the top and work your way down. And so I think firing the CEO is an example of starting at the top. That is, if we think about all the different decisions companies make, It's hard to find a more prestigious and important decision than firing the CEO. And so if you could just directly legitimize using speculative markets to make that decision, you would have indirectly legitimized lots of other decisions. Because people would say, well, if you can use that to fire the CEO, you could use it to fire the CFO, right, and CIO, and then maybe to a regional manager and maybe to pick an ad agency and, right, you'd work your way down the less prestigious decisions but each one of them you could have said well as long as you're willing to use it over there why not here
0: yeah i mean the, the, you, you can imagine you know these things backfiring except for that specific example the social network i mean if you say and if you're in you know politics today and you say an idea came from harvard that's usually i think a negative signal i think most people say that's bad or at least they pretend to think that um and so you know it could have the opposite effect. I guess if, if betting markets become something that people in Washington do, and they're a little bit too complicated for normal people to understand, right? There could be there could be a backlash. Do you worry about
1: that? Well, so let, yeah, so let's talk about sort of the public perception of betting markets, and to what extent you know what sort of attitudes there are to them and, and issues with public reaction. So um, I was involved in this, uh, you know publicity fiasco in two thousand and three. When I was part of a DARPA project where we had a research project set up to create betting markets on geopolitical events in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And then on a Monday morning, two senators had a press conference where they declared that this project wasn't going to be betting on death, betting on terrorist attacks. And that was terrible. And then, you know, by the very next morning after that, the secretary of defense in front of Congress declared the project dead. And in those 24 hours, they never asked us if the accusations were correct. They didn't need to because it was such a tiny project, why bother to even think about defending it? Uh, But that shows that, you know, many people have some mental rules about, you know, they don't think you should be betting on death. (laughs) That's just not appropriate. It doesn't matter why you might be doing that, right? And so people have some things they might be uncomfortable with betting on, and that's a thing you should stay away from, (laughs) is betting on death, say. Um, But if you'll notice that most of the business press uh, tends to report news in terms of financial market price movements. And they don't tend to question those movements, right? They try to explain them, but they don't question them. You know, mm-hmm. If the price of IBM goes up, the, the the reporters don't say, well, that was a mistake. It should have gone down. <laughs> they might say it went up because of this or because of that. Uh, but that's most accepting the prices as a good estimates and then trying to sort of explain them. That sometimes people will tentatively say, well, maybe these things are too high there or too low here. Uh, but that says that, you know, in the business press, at least, people do defer to You know financial market prices as uh sources of information and then you know that the potential that could apply elsewhere in society they there is a lot of deference given the financial market prices uh in a wide range of contexts
0: yeah yeah, I guess it depends on how sophisticated your audience is. You know, it's funny you mentioned the uh, people don't like death markets. There was unpredicted. There was a. There's always markets. Will uh you know, where Bashar al-Assad or will uh, Kim Jong Un you know be in office by this date? And uh, there was one on Kim Jong Un last year. And there was uh you know that's basically will he be you know uh, still the leader of North Korea by the uh, end of 2020? And it's basically a death market, you know, because there's not much you know chance of him getting overthrown or voted out or anything. Um, and there were some rumors about him. Having having bad health and he was out of the public eye for a while and you know there were even rumors that he was dead in the press and the market got down to something like 50-50 uh, and I remember I bet on this I bet that he would uh, that he would actually stay in office and you know he, he did and you know Kim Jong well, uh, we have off.
1: a more dramatic example of that in the US presidential <laughs> betting markets
0: because oh, with, if you uh,
1: might know the chance of Biden at the moment is like 20% being yeah. the next president, which the I chance of they, Trump is 30%, right? So, but Trump, Biden's the president right now and Trump lost the last, last election. So why would the Biden odds be so low? Well, the story is he might die
0: yeah, <laughs> or
1: be yeah, or yeah, become obviously public- incompetent and then not a candidate.
0: Yeah, I think think that's a, yeah, I think it's a combination of, you know, it's funny because the the market has been underestimating Biden for a really long time, or at least in my opinion, underestimating him. I've been betting against the market, but I've been been winning. But yeah, even when when he basically wrapped up the nomination, you know, it gave him a 70% uh, chance of being the nominee, which is just, you know, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, and it also, also always overestimated the, the chances I thought of Trump dropping dead, uh, not just right. when he had COVID, because there was that, that brief period where right. it looked like he could actually die. The hospital. So, so let's just
1: pause and notice, like, it's quite possible to look at these prices and say, well, that doesn't look right. Just like you can read a newspaper article and say, that doesn't sound right, or any yeah. other analysis anywhere else, right? So why am I recommending these market prices compared to anything else? Well, first of all, there's this track record. They do better. But there's this other argument which says, okay, if you read the newspaper article and you think it's wrong, what can you do about that? You can just complain. If you look at the betting market price and you think it's wrong, you can make money going betting against it and fixing those prices. And that's the, the engine that makes them more accurate is all these people that can be enticed and invited to come fix the problems.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I bet on I bet on Biden not dying and Trump not dying and both of them making it to election day. And yeah, I made I made money off of that. There right? you go. So
1: and so, could, and it, so a I'm too. not gonna certainly <laughs> argument that no one could ever find a mistake in these things. The question is sure. when you can find a mistake in things, which institution gives you the best opportunities to fix
0: it? Yeah. And, and you can compare the betting markets to, you know, just like punditry, because when I listen to pundits, uh, you know, they never gave Biden a chance either. So it's not like the pundits were all saying it's going to be Biden. I remember most people were
1: talking. So, so were let me at this way. point admit what I would say is the biggest problem <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which with futarchy and with some of these other decision markets, which is that they make hypocrisy harder, <laughs> which is actually a problem. <laughs> You might yeah. think, well, hypocrisy is a bad thing. Making it harder is good, right? Well, let's let's walk through that. <laughs> so at the moment, uh, they, ordinary people can claim to love trees and they just care a lot about trees. Trees are wonderful and they certainly wouldn't want to have fewer trees. But then they elect politicians who have to make choices about trees versus other things. And those politicians can probably read the public and say, well, they say they like trees, but they don't really like trees that much. So I'm not actually going to go cut down a bunch, you know, you know, save some trees by interfering with something else. And then if the public ever finds out that somehow, like, not everything was being done to save trees, the public can complain and say, that damn politician, they're corrupt, they were bought out, and I sure hate them, let's throw them out of office, right? Because the politician is allowing the public to be hypocritical, to pretend they care more about trees than they do. And this happens all through the political system. Like, for example, you know we have laws against prostitution that we don't enforce very well, which allows a lot of prostitution. So people can have prostitution and then pretend they're against it. And similarly with drug laws. Uh, and so a lot of our laws are, in some sense, to allow the public to pretend to have certain positions that they don't really have. And the the prediction markets, the, the you know futarchy decision markets, don't make that so easy. <laughs> that is if in in the if in the national welfare definition you put a high weight on trees then the speculators are actually going to approve the policies that do you know get you more trees and if mm-hmm. that's not what you wanted then you won't be happy
0: yeah but i mean there's there's such a i mean it's such a uh, you know there's such a step removed when you're talking about voters and and what they want, right? So you know, they want they want trees. But
1: I think right? it's even even <laughs> we talked about the example of, of hiring people, right? So you know, yeah. you have a couple of job candidates, and you want to hire the best one for the company, supposedly, right? Well, I think actually, when a person volunteers to be in charge of a hiring committee, they don't actually intend to pick the best person for the company. They intend to pick the best person for their coalition in the company, and force you know forcing these metrics of who was best for the company would interfere with their plan to pick somebody who's decent for the company but even better for their coalition and that's just the sort of thing that happens in many organizations you you would be uncomfortable setting up this process that didn't give you the flexibility to pretend to do a while really doing b yeah
0: so do you i mean uh, changing gears a little bit do you think that perhaps a you know the a uh foreign country perhaps some kind of dictatorship might be more amenable to to these kind of things because think of it this way they're looking for a you know many they're often looking for a sense of legitimacy uh, a reason for status that is not based on you know the uh, the you know the uh, the dominant culture which says you know you need elections and you need democracy and you need popular so, legitimacy so i think
1: to answer this we have to realize that there is a world elite culture Uh And this was very striking to me at the beginning of the pandemic a year and a half ago. Mm. Uh, So at the beginning of the pandemic, the usual public health experts took their usual positions, say, against masks and against travel restrictions and things like that. And then uh, this looked like an important thing. And all of a sudden, elites everywhere started talking a lot about the pandemic and discussing what they thought was the right thing to do. And they decided something else. (laughs) They came up with a different plan with lockdowns and masks and things like that, and once the elites had decided on that all the public health experts caved and said yeah yeah, that's what we should do and not just in the united states or britain all around the world and remarkably the policies adopted around the world have not varied that much Mm -hmm. uh, from what the elites together around the world recommended and if you look at other areas of policy like nuclear energy or electromagnetic spectrum uh drug regulation Policies around the world don't actually vary that much. There is some sort of world culture that sort of talks and decides what the right thing to do is, and then everybody does it. (laughs) And so there really aren't very many exceptions. So a remarkable thing was that, you know, early in the pandemic, many of us wanted there to be challenge trials where we would test vaccines quickly and, and effectively, or even test something like variolation. And basically nowhere in the world did they allow challenge trials. Only, say, recently in Britain have there been the first challenge trials. Yeah, Because just medical experts everywhere, and you might think, why didn't some dictator somewhere want to sort of be a hero by defying the world medical ethics experts and doing it different, right? None did, yeah. right? So that that really suggests that dictators around the world more crave the approval of the world elites in doing things the way the world elites want to, and, that, and their political power at home is more strengthened by appearing to follow along with what the world elites say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The political scientists said they call this a logic of appropriateness. And this is, you know, what guides government behavior. Although China sort of did that. I mean, what China did was go much harder on lockdowns and much harder on mass testing than other people. Right. Uh, and so there was a limited extent. I mean, they didn't do human challenge trials, to, to my knowledge. Right. Uh, but they did do things that were different. from. Right. So it's it, important it, to notice
1: there is variation in regulation around the world, but it's also important to notice how limited it is.
0: Yeah. It's within a narrow range. That's, that's true. Yeah. You see this on social issues. I mean, you see like Black Lives Matter protests in New Zealand and you see, you know, LGBT flags, all the countries in the world decided, you know, gay rights was important at pretty much the exact same time. This is
1: really a problem for large social Mm -hmm. innovation. So like I've, I've really over my life thought about lots of big ways we can make big changes to a lot of social institutions, but in a world like this, where everybody sort of wants to do what everybody else is doing, it's really hard to get anybody to try any big changes.
0: Is is an answer to this perhaps, you know, geopolitical tension? So if U.S. and China become best friends, right, they, you know, maybe they converge. If they hate each other, right, maybe they do completely different things. Could, could this be a hope that you have international tensions and you have these blocks and then at least people do different things?
1: I don't know, but I'm... Uh, You know, a lot of people have mentioned recently how badly, say, the U.S. military managed in, you know, Afghanistan for several decades. And they compare that, interestingly, to how flexible the U.S. military was in World War II after a bunch of big losses early on. (laughs) Right. And so the remarkable thing, you know, the U.S. military at the beginning of World War II was not very well run and not very well organized. And they had lousy suppliers and things. And then they made a bunch of big losses early on. And then they thought it was important enough not to keep doing that so that they fired people and fired suppliers and they now put performance as a priority because it was a big war. So apparently, you know, that's the kind of thing it seems to require But the pandemic apparently wasn't such a thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> The pandemic was not a big enough crisis that we fired people who did badly on it. Neither was Afghanistan. So we're, we're in a world where we have these big things we do wrong, but they somehow just aren't bad enough to, to really scare us into like, trying different things. So
0: yeah, the question I mean, is,
1: where will we ever see some nation or big organization that's scared enough about losing to be willing to roll the dice and try some big changes?
0: yeah yeah i think i mean i think there's a uh you know when you look at the american military establishment in world war ii i mean the military establishment was a new thing you were building basically something for scratch you have the um now you have all these vested interests you know it's funny The the places the the, the countries with the most u.s military uh with the, the most military personnel in the world are actually italy germany japan and south korea right well, those are the those
1: are like, risky dangerous spots you'd want troops there wouldn't you
0: yeah, well, maybe, but you know, if you notice, they have something in common. That those are the those are the Axis powers, and right. you know the the the, uh, the Korean War, right? So right. Know, basically they're exa- they're the exact same place they were in 1945 to 1950. it's so hysteresis, right? Enormous path dependence. Yeah, exactly. Enormous path dependence. Yeah, Italy. I mean, is that is that obvious? You know, the most dangerous place in the world. You know, maybe maybe not, but you know, the fact no, that no, it's,
1: no, it's not even it's not remotely yeah. obviously, The
0: most dangerous place in the world. So, yeah, so, I mean, do you, I mean, are you, I mean, do you look around the world and right now, do you see, um, you know, do you see variation in the extent to which countries are willing to, not only take risks, but take risks, you know, specifically along the path that you, uh, that you suggest, you know, letting things go. There's a, there, there was an article, in the economist uh, earlier this year, I don't know if you see it, but uh, uh, the, uh, the UK, ha- uh, the intelligence agencies had a, um, ha- uh, have a prediction market, uh, but it's called uh cosmic Bazaar, And I actually Googled it and I couldn't find it. And if you can't, you know, find it on first page of Googling, uh, you know, that, that's not a right. good sign. So,
1: so the U S intelligence agency has also had, An internal prediction market going for a while. And they've had this interesting way they handled it politically. So in, say, the CIA, the coin of the realm is reports uh, or analyses, right? Somebody writes a report that analyzes a particular place like Italy, say, and summarizes the, the key strategic situation there and the key intelligence situation. And there are these betting markets uh, that exists that like where people can bet and uh, forecast on these things but the rule is they don't cite the betting market in the reports <laughs> so the market doesn't get credit for influencing the reports although it probably does influence the reports so that mm-hmm. limits the degree to which it gets budget or attention because you know why bother to bet in the market if you're not going to get credit there
0: yeah yeah, there is, a, there is a paper that actually uh, coming from the intelligence agencies that uh, compared uh, uh, super forecasters and people who had you know, proven some track record versus uh, uh, people in the intelligence community with uh, access to classified information. Uh, Phil Tutlock uh, right. showed me this paper. And yeah, you could probably guess what happened. The intelligence community lost to the, uh, to the people with the track record of forecasting. So you can see why the intelligence community might not want to hype up this, this result. Is, is one, one thing you could—I mean, would you right. just—I mean, it seems like there is a lot of data right. So, so
1: clearly, you know, the intelligence community is, is basically saying, "Yes, we know we could get more accurate estimates from that, but we don't want them. We like our yeah. current system, right? Mm-hmm. If they were scared, that might turn out different, right?
0: If they were scared of China, yeah, right? right. But, you pay. know, some
1: external threat. I mean, the same thing was true about my betting market fiasco, publicity fiasco in two thousand and three. So this was soon after, you know, nine eleven, and um, just two years later." And uh, people looked at the betting markets and said, "Oh, you're betting on death. That's terrible. You have to shut them down." Like if they were really scared of terror attacks, if they were actually feeling like a large degree of threat, they would have said, "You know, to heck with this rule against betting on death. Let, let's let's turn on these markets. Let's find out where the attacks are yeah. going to be so we can stop them." Don't
0: so they say Bin Laden is just going to put all his money in the market and then, and then attack? Right, but that him. was
1: crazy because <laughs> I mean these were relatively thin markets and they wouldn't going to have a lot of money in stake and uh, so. You know, and there's basically a fact that people don't know about the markets is that uh, many people criticize by saying, well, somebody will try to manipulate the markets by uh, betting on one side, not because they know better, but because they're willing to lose money in order to distort the market price. And and that is true. There are people willing to manipulate markets, but um, that actually makes the prices more accurate. (laughs) So, for example, on the fire of the CEO market, you say, well, the CEO wants to keep his job. So... He will bet in these markets in order to make itself look like the price will be higher if he stays and lower if he leaves. And yes, he would have an incentive to do that. But uh, when other traders know that somebody will be trying to manipulate in the market, they know to increase their trading and their efforts and that compensates and actually on net makes the prices more accurate. And that's something we see in theory and we've seen in the lab and we've seen in the field. So these markets are robust to attempts to manipulate. In fact, People who want to manipulate them make the prices more accurate.
0: Yeah. Do you think that uh, one way to raise you – know, one way thing we, we should do is raise the status of thinking about these things and thinking about betting markets? Because it seems like there is data out there. I mean, you could go to the stock market. We've talked about, you know, predicted. You can go back to elections. You could see conditional. you could calculate some kind of conditional probabilities. Uh, do you think, it, you know, a, a good thing could be just to have more economists just interested in these questions and looking at data and, you know, I mean, It, it couldn't
1: be bad but the question is just how much hope should you have (laughs) and and that's a key question about a lot of institutional choices so honestly if you just look look at institutional issues in the united states or other countries and you ask which kinds of choices do people get really excited about and emotional and interested in if you tell them about a policy change that would just benefit most everybody they yawn and can't be bothered to pay attention they would just yeah. lose interest, right? If you tell them about a policy change that will be help their side and hurt the other side, oh, they just love that. People are really eager to fight in a battle, and so a lot of the you know topics that energize them are the topics that are you know represent a conflict between one group and another group, uh-huh. and that means institutional changes are, are just boring because even if you can find out a better institution, it just doesn't map onto their side versus the other side.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, that gives me—that I mean, gives me an idea for an invest, you know, investment idea. What if there's, uh, you know, so you you see these things in the conservative press? They're talking about some corporation has gone woke, right? They have a critical race theory trade against right. Coca Cola or or whatever. Uh, basically, you could have a, uh, you know, a uh, some kind of mutual fund that just shorts. The wokest companies, whoever conservative sure. maybe, whoever Fox News happens to be complaining about at the
1: time, right. and that would be a way in which you are sort of, <laughs> of taking a side, and then that would be more energizing to people. People right. would just like invest, to take a side in,
0: in those corporations, right? right. Exactly, and then but, eventually you would learn if this thing lost money year after year, and you know you'd learn something. Game sure. In fact,
1: ordinary people would be more interested in betting in the stock market if they could simultaneously be taking a political side with their stock market bets. Yeah. Which but, is, they always, you know, but
0: they can. Yeah. They can. I mean, right now we have all these outrages over some corporation is doing this or that. So you right. know, you'd figure, I wonder if that's actually, you know, if that's actually inspiring more people to get into the stock market. It's hard to tell with Robinhood, you know, and expanding the, you know, making it easier. Uh, but you could imagine some entrepreneurs doing that, right? right? You could imagine somebody setting something up and, you know, advertising to people, we're going to short all the woke corporations. And you can imagine them doing well.
1: Right. So the fundamental problem is how do you create it or find it, create a community that just cares about overall benefit of of a nation or a company or things like that. And unfortunately, one of the main ways that's ever happened is war. So we talked about World War II a bit before, and, and there's a literature that suggests that war has been one of the main engines of innovation for the last 10,000 years, um, which is a terrible fact because it means that if you want more innovation, you'll have to have more war and war is just, terrible thing yeah Uh, but you know all this time of peace and prosperity we've had for a while here we also do seem to be a see a degradation in our interest in sort of coming together for overall collective benefit and more focus on internal divisions uh and more focus on sort of just doing whatever helps us in these little local battles and not caring very much about the overall yeah nation because we're sort of assuming that's okay
0: yeah, well, I mean, you see, you see nationalism sort of manifest itself, and say, you know, soccer games like Germany and France are now fighting wars, but they, you know they, they're they're they would they'll go to soccer games, and you know, it's, right. there's this hooligan culture uh, in Europe where people really really get into. Right,
1: their but style. would they be willing to change some key national policy in order to make sure they could win more soccer games? <laughs>
0: well i think it would, it would have to be i think the class of the people again the class of the people who makes the policy is different from the you know the right. soccer kids right <laughs> and so it it would just be a matter of the elites having some kind of you know national pride or it doesn't i mean doesn't have to i mean doesn't even have to be uh you know doesn't have to be you know national i mean could it be just you know the, i mean could it be just you know sort of uh A class pride or a pride in background you know these aristocrats before there was national mass nationalism right there was uh there was war right there was these aristocrats that you know they had their own value system and they had their you know their codes of conduct right um
1: well i mean the key thing would be say if the elites of romania for something want romania to look better in the world's eye and try to make romania be run better overall that could be an energy that would you know focus on overall quality of romania as opposed to the left elites in Romania fighting the right elites in Romania, right? (laughs) And being in a battle of taking down the other side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what's, what's really dead. So it sounds like what's really dangerous is sort of, there's this global elite culture where it's not just, you know, public health. It's like on social issues on, you know, just, right.
1: And they have strong consensus and sort of, you know, you just have to follow the global elites to be part of them. And so there's not much so much competition within those global elites in that sense for, for doing things effectively.
0: Yeah, yeah, the competition is just you know the the, right. the less well off people in their own country. I mean, if you think of say Elon Musk,
1: actually... say right. So right. if if the global elites go test test Elon Musk and say, well, you know, he's not doing it right, he needs to follow these regulations, right? And then Elon Musk is actually like making things better and making a better internet and and a better you know space industry or whatever, well, does Elon Musk like if he wins, does that change the elites to be more supporting him, or do they just get more mad that he defied them? and he seems to be winning.
0: Yeah, what do you what do you think about the potential? I mean, there's a lot of uh, people in Silicon Valley, people in the crypto world, uh, uh, people like uh, my friend Balaji uh, Sir Devonson, uh and you know Mark Andreessen and people like this who really take a dim view of the sort of the Davos set, the the New York you know the New York Times reading public, um, and they see you know and I, I don't know if they see themselves this way. I'm not speaking for anybody, but what do you, but that could potentially be a kind of counter elite, right? I mean, well, maybe, but, maybe, and maybe the maybe danger
1: not. is that if the regular elites see this defiant group of tech elites winning against them. That makes yeah. them really mad and wanting to take them down.
0: Well, well, that's the risk of competition, right? The, the good side could, you know, the or the, the more productive side could lose, right? But if we're, if we're thinking about how to have competition and how to you know if, if we're not going to have wars if we're not going to start wars, right if we
1: can have a fair competition then then it would be good if different parts of the world if the european say tech people said well we're seem to be losing against those people how could we organize ourselves better uh right if, if the different parts of the world fear competition and then as a result try to find more effective ways to organize themselves that's great that's exactly what we want yeah but yeah. they need to fear it enough to actually be willing to make big changes uh-huh. And so, so the prediction market stuff we're talking about is off. Actually, relatively big, destructive changes that even mm-hmm. tech companies have not been willing to do.
0: Right. So are you? Are you? Uh, so I mean, are you? Are you involved in any uh, any projects at the moment? You talked about the post nine eleven the DARPA grant. I mean, is there anything sim- similar going on now? Or I've been advising a number
1: of companies over the years, but I haven't seen sort of big trials of the sort I'd really like to be part of. But um, yeah. I, I keep what, what is, searching. The, what
0: is if you had if you had enough if you had enough of uh, investment, say somebody if there was some donor who wanted to help you do it, right. it, it is, would it, would, it, would it be a big help or is well, there some regulatory? Oh sure, program? of course
1: it could be a big help. But um, so there's two paths to go. One is to sort of do this fire of the CEO market, in which case you'd have to go offshore and just defy regulators to set something up, right? But with mm-hmm. enough money, you could do that. But you'd have to have funder who was willing to be associated with something like that. The other approach is you go within organizations and you fund these you know, small-scale trials within organizations. And then what you need is both money and an organization willing to put up with the disruption. So let me just tell you a story about uh, um, deadlines. So uh, one of the most successful applications of this over the years has been deadlines. That is, quite often people have a project and they have a deadline and they have these regular project meetings and they get together and they all tell themselves, we're on, on track, we're going to make the deadline. And then they open a betting market and all of a sudden the prices drop, you know, below 5% that say, no way, you're not going to make this deadline. And of course the market's white. <laughs> and that really bothers the people running the project and who don't want to continue it. And so you might ask, well, don't they want to know if their project's going to make the deadline? So that's what I want to explain now. So if you have a project with a deadline, one of the main things you ask yourself is if I fail to make this deadline, what will my excuse be? And I want to have a good excuse if I fail to make the deadline. And everyone's favorite excuse is the following. We were going along just fine. And then at the last minute, some weird thing came out of left field and knocked us flat. It'll never happen again. It's so weird. It's so rare. There's no point in keeping track of this thing or holding anybody responsible. We should just move on. Now, that story is interfered with if you have a betting market that said all along you're not going to make this deadline you know the story had to be we were going along fine and then at the last minute <laughs> and that's why you have all these project meetings where everybody says we're going along fine and apparently project managers would rather have a better excuse if they failed than have better warnings about failing the project
0: yeah yeah that, i mean that makes that makes sense but that you know that's that's one one path is just to get corporations to act in their own interest and you know you might right. be and i
1: actually think that is the most promising path so uh, but it you know would help to have other people you know spur them on by funding these trials that could um you know get them to overcome their reluctance yeah. to do these disruptive things
0: yeah it really i mean it really sounds i mean it really sounds i mean it's it sounds like this should i mean it sounds yeah i can see the barriers but it doesn't sound like this should be the most difficult thing in the world. (laughs) You just have to have somebody out But I think
1: if you look at the history of financial innovation and social innovation in general, a lot of social innovations were adopted and changed long after they were possible. Yeah, right. So for example, like life insurance or commodity markets, those were possible in the ancient world. They've been possible all through history, but they didn't really take off until, say, the late 1800s. And that's because it just takes a while for people to be willing to try things
0: yeah although i don't think technology is you know that independent i mean you have you have greater wealth you have you know greater bookkeeping Sure. so as
1: society gets richer then we just have more room for lots of kinds of experiments and there's more just random ways in which something might get tried
0: yeah especially you know yeah since this is a lot of this is on software and you know that's you know the cost of computing and all that is is going down so So, yeah, I mean, I mean, on that note, are you are you optimistic about maybe not in the immediate future, but someday I'm definitely optimistic in the long run. That
1: is, you know, the fundamental stance to say is when you think of technology, you think about gadgets and materials and maybe software, but social technology is also technology. We also have technologies, how we run meetings, how we organize firms, how we compensate salespeople, how we vote. That's all technology, too. And we've been innovating in that technology as well as the physical technology, but we just have different incentives and dynamics in the social innovation because people can't own it as much. And so they don't like create startups to sell it as often. And we have a lot more of these psychological barriers to the social innovation, right? So if if you're in a company that has physical technology and somebody suggests making a new material, you can probably make that new material and leave your organizational structure alone. It doesn't threaten who's in charge of which division so much. But if you have social innovation, it, it sort of goes to the heart of who's doing what and who's in charge of what. And that's more threatening.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And all right, so, yeah, I mean, this has been a great conversation. It's fascinating. If there's anybody who's, you know, out there who's also to this, who wants to help, uh, who wants to, you know, advance the cause of future arc. Future you know arc, where to find, find us. <laughs> <laughs> you just, they can just, you know, Absolutely. log on to Twitter, email you. and Absolutely. You know, they, they make that document. Okay. It's, it's been a pleasure, Robin. Uh, great talking oh, great to you. Talking and, to you. And, um, and yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. Okay. Take care.